Labor Day falls on the second. We happen to have fireworks left over from 4th of July. We're going to blast these fireworks off on Labor Day. We're going to make our own holiday. It's okay. We can do it. So what we're going to do, we won't note this in next month, but it's good. <laughs> yeah. I'm clearing it with the boss as we speak, so hey. Uh, we're going to have an evening barbecue, and then we'll do the fireworks. So we'll probably come together around 6 o'clock on Sunday evening, the 1st. That's only two weeks away. And we will grill and barbecue, and then we'll do our fireworks, and everybody's happy, and we don't have to store all those fireworks in my office for the full year. So we will do that. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 33. Uh and in the last verses of chapter 32, Jacob has faced God one-on-one, -on -one and he has lived to tell about it. Jacob has seen God the Son face to face. It was Jesus who contended with Jacob, or as the great wrestling match, you might say. And sometimes, as believers, we can hear people make light of encountering with God. Uh, we can hear things uh, like, uh, when I meet the man upstairs, I've got a few questions for him. <laughs> I always want to tell that person, hey, he may have a few questions for you. <laughs> um, Jesus contended with Jacob, he touched his hip socket, put the hip out of joint, the muscle shrank, and Jacob limps for the rest of his life. Part of the price of contending with God, part of the price of receiving the blessing that he got. Jacob's hip is injured, but he survived his encounter with God. And he got a name change. He went from being Jacob. He went to Israel. When Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he says, no longer will you be called Jacob. But you are now Israel. And Israel means governed by God. Jacob, in his boldness, he was not a shy man. In his boldness, he asked Jesus. He says, tell me your name, I pray. And Jesus said to him, why do you ask my name, Jacob? Or in other words, bad question. <laughs> then we have Jacob. After Jesus has touched his hip socket, he limps back across the Jabbok River to meet his brother Esau, who is coming with 400 men to meet him. So we pick up in Genesis chapter 33, and we'll read the whole chapter. It's not a real long chapter. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there was Esau coming. And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in the front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. 
Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and, and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from your, my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I have seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us make our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herd which are nursing are with me. And if men should drive them hard one day, the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock can go before me. And the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and see her. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of my people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in your sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor and Shechem's father for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there, and he called it Elohi Israel. So we have the great encounter between Jacob and Esau. Verses 1 through 3, uh, Jacob is now Israel. He's now governed by God, but all of the old Jacob isn't removed. <laughs> he continues to strive. He continues to contend with the ways of God. Jacob's old ways did not instantly go away. There's still a lot of flesh in most of our lives. The day we became a Christian, all of our old ways just didn't instantly go away. Uh, Jacob has divided his wives and his children. He divided the maidservants and their children, placing them up front and making them the first ones to encounter Esau. And then the last ones in this little parade of Jacob is uh, Rachel and Joseph. Of course, they're the favored ones. 
And then we have Jacob coming up behind everybody else, and he's bowing as he's coming, and he bows seven times before Esau. And this is an outward sign by Jacob of submission to Esau. Verse 4, Esau runs to meet Jacob, gives him a big old hug, embraces Jacob, and gives his brother a kiss. This is an emotional reunion between Jacob and Esau, and they weep. Call me callous, but I have been to several family reunions. I've yet to weep when I meet my in-laws and outlaws and so forth. I just don't feel it necessary to cry when I see him. Jacob, he introduces his family, his wives, his children to Esau. And in verse 8, we have Esau, and he's wanting to know about all the flocks and herd that Jacob has sent forward to him. Jacob, he's up front with his reply, and he says, I have sent these gifts, these presents, these flocks to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob is simply apologizing for his past behavior. Esau says, keep your presence, Jacob. I have enough. But Jacob wants to give gifts. He wants to give these presents to Esau. And notice the words of Jacob. Take my blessing that is brought to you. Jacob is saying to his brother Esau there, I was wrong to lie to dad and steal the birthright and the blessing." Jacob is now offering Esau the blessings which he stole. Please take these blessings of the flocks, the herds, as a gift to you. Because Jacob says, God has been good to me. He's been gracious to me. And then he says, I have enough. And Esau receives the gifts. Now, in that culture, if you did, not re you did not receive a gift from an enemy, you would say, no, no, you keep your gift. Uh, by receiving the gifts of Jacob, Esau is telling Jacob, I forgive you. So they're reconciled. And that's a beautiful thing, reconciliation. So I have a word for you ladies and you wives. When you accept our flowers, and our candy. You're saying you forgive us. Never to be pouted over or remembered again. So let it settle. If you receive the presents, you got to forgive us. No remembrance, all right? Just getting that out here in the open. But, you know, we have an example of this when we look at Father Abraham. Abraham received gifts from uh, different people in his life. And he demonstrates this custom of receiving a gift from a friend and not receiving a gift from an enemy. Abraham himself received presents and gifts from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, 
After Pharaoh had taken Sarah into his harem, Abraham received presents from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh restored Sarah to Abraham. Abraham also received presents and gifts from Abimelech. And it was the same kind of circumstance. Abimelech is just a, another way to say king. Abimelech, he gives Sarah back to Abraham along with sheep and oxen, plus 1,000 pieces of silver. Abimelech is saying to Abraham, Hey, I didn't know she was your wife. This vindicates me in the eyes of everybody if you receive my gift. And Abraham takes the gift. So you say, okay. But in chapter 14, Abraham has returned from defeating the kings of the north who captured his nephew Lot. You remember the story. And when Abraham returned back down to Canaan, he, he gives a tithe to the priest Melchizedek. And he gives a tithe, or 10%, of all the booty that they took from these kings of the north. But let me read a couple verses to you. Uh, uh, Genesis 14, 21 through 23. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing, not a thread or a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abraham refuses the gifts of the king of Sodom. Sodom was a typology of sin, and Abraham is determined that he will not benefit in any way from sinful Sodom. This happens to be the same Sodom that God judged and rained down fire and brimstone upon it. So what's our lesson? We have to be careful who we receive gifts from. Gifts can be a type of a bribe. Gifts can put pressure on whoever receives them to then do favors for the, the one who gives the gifts. We were just moving into this lovely, freshly painted metal building. Doesn't it look good, I tell you what. But anyway, and we were replacing all our ceiling tiles, and they were in pretty bad shape. And I, I knew a man of questionable character, and he offered to buy all the ceiling tiles for the church. And that was, there was like over 400 of them, I believe. And I politely refused his offer. I did not want that man that I knew of questionable reputation to boast of his gifts to our church. Sorry. I said, no, we can't accept them. Esau, after reconciling with Jacob, wants to escort Jacob back to Seir. Jacob declines Esau's offer of, you know, going before him. And he says, hey, look, we're okay. Uh, the little ones in the flocks, they're going to have to move real slowly. You go on, you go on back home. 
and uh, we will follow. However, Jacob does not return to Seir, to, to the place where Esau is, but he goes north to Sukkoth. Jacob, again, has been a little deceitful in his ways with his brothers, and the old ways of deception die hard with Jacob. He's a new man, but he's not a perfect man. Again, this can be the case with many born-again Christians when we become a believer. We're not perfect. Some of our old sinful ways die hard. That is why the Holy Spirit takes us through what we call sanctification. All sanctification is is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us into a righteous person. And the Holy Spirit does that willingly. And he takes us on and he produces godly character in our lives. Hopefully, each and every one of us are more spiritual today than we were yesterday or, you know, last year. Jacob, he is very happy and pleased to be reconciled to Esau, but he's not comfortable being Esau's neighbor, so he goes north. It appeared that Bethel was where God wanted Jacob to come to or return to from when he left Padan Aram. But we see Jacob is not completely obedient to God. He buys land there in Shechem, and he builds a house. He also built an altar there to the Lord. And Jacob is right in the middle of, he's right in the process of learning that obedience is what God desires, not sacrifice. You know, sacrifice is actually easier than obedience. It's easier for us to sacrifice something to the Lord than to be obedient to the Lord. That's why the Lord measures our spirituality in what? Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll sacrifice to me. We will obey him. And in Jacob's time there in Sukkoth, we don't see anything good coming out of his life. There was no lasting fruit when he was there in Shechem. And God's desire for each and every one of us is that we bear fruit and that that fruit remain. That's what he has for our lives. But let me turn your attention back to the words of reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. Verse 9, Esau graciously tells Jacob concerning all the herds and flock that Jacob has sent as presents to him. He says, Jacob, I have enough. Verse 11, Jacob tells Esau, please accept all the herds and flocks because I have enough. It's a good place in your life 
when you're satisfied with possessions or positions. And the reason that's a good place is because when the need for more is quenched in our lives, when that desire is alleviated, then we are free to pursue the higher call upon our life, and that's to serve God. But if you're still striving for things or positions, you cannot give God your complete heart. John D. Rockefeller, the original papa, <laughs> was asked after becoming a millionaire, back when a million was a million, <laughs> they asked him, how much more money do you need? And he said, just one more million. <laughs> That's all. And we all know the problems with money and possession and how they can consume us. But I want you to consider just for a moment, just for a moment now, I want you to consider when is enough enough? Solomon, the richest man who ever lived according to scripture was told by God, because you did not ask for riches and wealth, I have given to you them to you more than any other king. God also said to David, I have given you the house of Israel. And had that been too little, I would have given you much more. But uh, Solomon and David both had enough in their lives. And God's blessing was what they desired. For me personally, land and acreage was something you could never have too much of. Right after Lori and I got married, we bought our, our first ranch in California. 28 acres on the Stanislaus River an absolute beautiful piece of property. And we bought all that we could afford, probably bought more than we could afford. <laughs> but one of the first things I did was look at the parcel next door about the same size of piece of land that we bought and instantly coveted that other piece of property, not content with what we had. And you know, when the Lord put his finger on that little ranch and quote, required us to sell it, that was hard for me. It was very hard. Now, I still look at land as being a good investment, but no longer do I burn with the desire for more to land. I can honestly say to you, I have enough land, almost. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> I really do. I've come to grips with that. I have enough. <laughs> but it, that has to be satisfied. And once that's satisfied, then we're free to serve our Lord. But concerning positions or achievements, 
Now, you may not be familiar with Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapels, but I admire Chuck Smith for many things. One, he's, uh, there's never been a hint of scandal in his life. And I, and I really appreciate that, you know. But I'll tell you about one of the things not many people know about, about Chuck. It's when Calvary Chapel was absolutely booming, the one in Costa Mesa there, the one Chuck pastors, had about 30, 35,000 people that called it their home church. It was a wealthy church. They had acquired radio stations. They had acquired uh, resort centers. They had uh, Bible schools in Europe that they had converted into Bible schools out of castles. And uh, my son attended one of these in Austria. But one day, Chuck met with his board and said, we're large enough. We're big enough. No more expanding. We will just try to serve the people who attend here and minister to them. Calvary Chapel at that time was one of the largest churches in America. And it had the opportunity to be perhaps the largest church in America. But Chuck had come to the conclusion that they were large enough. So how does that relate to us? We're not the largest church in America. <laughs> By the world's standards, we here in this room are wealthy beyond measure. So we have to ask the question, when is enough enough? And you got to be careful when you ask that question because we don't want to use the world's measuring stick about when enough is enough. For the world says to us and screams to us, every advertiser of every product says, more is better. You can't use that. That's the world's idea. Or a higher position is always better. As a Christian, as a steward of the funds God has put in your hands, the question becomes, are you laying up treasures in heaven that moth and rust cannot devour? That's our question. There it is. The opposite of that, of course, are, are you still trying to build your own little empire, your own little kingdom? So I say to you, in all humbleness, when is enough enough? Jacob and Esau came to that. Chuck Smith come to that. I hope we each and every one of us come to that. Because until you come to the conclusion that you have enough, you will strive and you will be like Jacob. We're going to have a potluck, but we're also, we got our little prayer section back there. And if you want to agree with someone in prayer concerning any issue in your life, maybe you want to pray for a healing of your body. Maybe you want prayer for an unsaved loved one. 
agree with somebody in prayer before you leave here. Prayer is uh, access to the living God. We have access to the living God over any need or desire in our life. Take advantage of our little prayer area. There'll be people that are more than willing to pray with you. So let me get you to stand and we'll close in prayer. Father God, I would ask that you cause each of us to take inventory in our hearts and lives and determine to be good stewards of the funds you've put there and help us to see when we have enough and we no longer need to strive for more. And then, Lord, we ask you to take our lives and use them for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, we have a higher call on our lives than things or positions. Let us submit to you with a willful heart. I would pray, Lord, that you would show us in the next few days exactly what you've called us to, what you would have us to be looking into, what ministry you would have us be doing. And, Lord, uh, use our lives. We want to be used of you, Lord, for the glory of your kingdom. We've seen the world, Lord, and it doesn't have anything to offer compared to you. So help us to understand that. Help us to realize that. We pray that you would continue to be with us here this morning as we now have our potluck and just make it a good time of fellowship. And anyone who needs prayer, Lord, we pray that they will just seek out and agree with, with somebody in prayer before they leave here. So we pray that you would just watch over us and take care of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.